0: and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Hannah Fern. Now you don't need to spend quite as much time on social media as I do uh, to realise that our politics have become much more divisive. Social geographer Danny Dawling, probably the country's most prolific academic, has yet another book out this autumn, this time investigating our fractured politics. And he's in The Bunker with me today. Hi Danny, welcome back.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm going to ask this bruised from yet another personal Twitter or X spat that I fell foul of this week, where people just misunderstood the point I was trying to make and deliberately tried to suggest I was saying something I definitely wasn't. Why is everybody just so mean to each other now? Is it is this about just our politics or is it a broader social phenomenon?
1: The, the trick is to try to measure it uh, because you can think they're always being mean so you measure it by looking at surveys which ask people how much they can trust people, or, or much more direct questions such as, "Would you leave your bag on the train and go to the toilet and ask a stranger to look after it?" These it may sound ridiculous, but these questions have been asked across Europe, and in the more unequal countries at more unequal times, people become less trusting, more angry, more tired, and more mean. Uh, Twitter is particularly interesting. Uh, if I want to have a serious conversation in Twitter, say on an issue that's scientific but controversial, such as COVID, I actually translate my tweets into Spanish and put them up on Spanish and then other medics um, <laughs> reply because you don't do it in English if you want to have a civilised conversation in Twitter. I can't speak Spanish.
0: That's depressing. But it's, or is it it's, just it's very
1: depressing. But it, but it a revelation.
0: Kind
1: of, it's a revelation that this is very much... An English language thing. Uh, I also follow Twitter in Finnish. Again, I can't speak Finnish, but I've written a book about Finland. It's so polite. <laughs> and it might be partly because they will actually know each other in real life. These are not big cities in Finland. But the UK is the most unequal part of Europe. The USA is almost the most unequal, large country, rich country in the world. And these are the places where you have the most uncivil, angry hatred of each other kind of conversations.
0: What does the data or any of that polling tell us about why that reaction occurs?
1: This is a problem with social science. There are thousands of studies and nothing is entirely provable. But when people become tired in particular and frightened and feel that they're being put down, feel that their their position is under threat, they're much more likely to react angrily. It is quite hard to be kind all the time in an unequal country. You have to tell yourself to do it. I have to tell myself not to ever write something nasty on Twitter, not to apply in a sarcastic way to something. And in fact, if somebody is nasty to me, and I do choose to apply, to apply with extra kindness and politeness, and the little naughty bit of me goes, I know that really <laughs> winds them up. Um, but because it's, it's re- hard
0: to respond to that with even more yeah. aggression. Yeah, it, it, but
1: I can do that because I have a permanent job. I'm a well-paid university professor. I am safe. I'm not worried about the food. I'm not worried about how I rank compared to other people. I'm not worried about paying the mortgage. And people like me are increasingly rare.
0: Well, how you rank compared to others is an interesting one. There was a recent YouGov poll that I thought seemed to sort of paint us as uniquely mean minded. And it asked if people on benefits should be able to afford any extras or leisure activities in their lives. And some of the stats were were quite fascinating. 60%, which is a majority, albeit not quite the majority I would prefer to see. Said that everybody should be able to afford to engage in seasonal celebrations, but only half said that everyone should be able to access a TV, which seems such a basic level of being able to relax uh, and, and, and access entertainment, um, the arts, culture, and so on. And even fewer thought benefit claimants or disabled people with state support should have finances to enjoy broader leisure time. I mean, that's quite depressing. Is it a fair representation of? Who we are, or is it um, what they ask? That,
1: um, uh... Okay, I, I I looked at that poll in great detail, and the questions were worded in a particular way, and I'd love to know who commissioned that part of the survey. So the questions were ambiguous, and they were ambiguous enough that the question about whether people who are poor should be able to afford to have a television, you could have answered no to that and actually meant nobody should be so poor that they couldn't afford a television. Mm. And I don't know whether the questions were deliberately uh, made ambiguous enough to get the headline figures or not. The reason why I think it's fascinating is that at exactly the same time, but over four days, YouGov held another poll. And in that poll, they asked whether the government was doing enough for people who were poor. And the fascinating thing in that poll was that Every single social group, apart from the 1%, apart from people with a household income of over around about 160,000, in the majority said that the government were not doing enough. Hmm. But what was really revealing was that we have a group of people and the sample was big enough to actually find out that the very rich in Britain really don't want, in a majority at least, people who are poor to be looked after. And that tells us quite a lot about our society. People who are really comfortable don't think other people deserve to be helped from from suffering. So the same company, YouGov, survey taken at exactly the same time, at the same population of the UK, different questions asked in a slightly different way, reveals that most people are very, very decent and think the government are not doing enough, except for this tiny 1% group who are really in favour of what Mr Sunak, who of course is in that group, way at the top of it, uh, and others are doing. Um, we are a broad span of mm. population roughly 80% of us are pro-social and nice and then a the minority of us are less empathetic just naturally and a small minority of those are very dangerously unempathetic um, to the point where you can't really blame them they don't know what it feels like to care mm. they have never <laughs> cared uh, you just have to watch out for them and in decent countries and in equitable times equitable places you control these people in other times and particularly in our country right now in England we let people with no empathy get to the top and occasionally we even vote for them
0: so political division often comes down to some kind of judgment about others that you mentioned earlier people sort of rank themselves like am I doing better than you who's doing worse and we like to feel ourselves to be doing better that is just part of human nature and how social groups work
1: not necessarily doing better most people don't want to uh be doing better than others and and they they understand of course that they can't although their understanding is far higher in more equal countries so in more equal countries people are more clever become more clever in more equal countries so they understand simple things like only 1% can ever be in the 1% mm. half of you have to be below average right. at everything in more unequal countries and unequal times, you get a higher proportion of people saying that they are better looking than average, they're better car drivers than average, that they want their children are cleverer than most children. So this wanting to do better. And is that because better, we
0: have this feeling that we need to feel that about ourselves to actually s- stay safe, stay secure yes. financially, so it, uh, socially? So in
1: England, if you are not in the top ten percent. Uh, then you have to survive on 60% of what's left. The bottom 90%, the vast majority of people are living on 60% of GDP. The top 10% are taking 40%. So it is very hard in a country like England not to try your hardest and do whatever you can. If you're already in the top 10%, you try to make sure that your family and your children stay there.
0: Hence, Or even progress to the 1%. Oh, in progress. Yeah. So,
1: you know, if you wonder why are people spending a fortune on private schools when, you know, nowadays the majority of children go to university, what are you, what are you paying for? Mm. It's the fear. Mm. The fear that your children or your family may become normal and may drop into that 90%. And, and this fear goes all the way through society, but it's most acutely felt at the top. The top 1% have just as much, if not more, fear of falling in to the rest of the 10%. The fear is greater as you go up.
0: And what exactly are those fears of? Are they genuinely almost physical fears in, in the sense of if my children yeah. mix with these people, they won't become the like me, they'll become a different sort of person, my family will change. Is it is it that sort of level of yes. kind of almost existential crisis or is it something much more...
1: It's really deep felt. Uh, I once talked to a father at an elite public school at, a, at an event, a public event, and he was in his 60s and was quite an old father. And I said, why are you paying for your son to go to school? And he said, so he'll be safe. He'll be absolutely safe in life. And I said, but you can't completely guarantee that. And he turned to me and said, no, I can I'm paying for it. That's why I'm doing it. But you can see this fear. You can see it in why do people pay £200,000 more for a house in a good school catchment than a poor school catchment? What is it that they're actually frightened of? And you can measure the degree of fear by the amount of money spent to avoid this. We don't talk about these things. This is a society with the greatest fear in Western Europe uh, for very good reasons. One in 10 people every year use private health care because they can't get, you know, you literally worry about dying if mm. you're not rich enough. Um, and
0: interesting, there isn't the same debate about that. People, just, you know, there's there's a debate about private schooling in exactly the way that you've played out with yeah. you know criticism for using it, criticism for not using it. Yeah. Uh, but we don't see the same debate about the health service and no, no. private health.
1: We don't talk about how people go for their knees being done earlier by jumping the queue, how they get their hips done earlier, their cataracts done before other people. We we don't understand because everybody's in pain and you can understand it. They're all in pain. Nobody goes for an operation because they want to for fun. Mm. So we are more understanding. But we do know that in normal countries in Europe, you don't have to wait very long. And in really good countries like Finland, which I've gone on about, if you're really unlucky, you might have to wait three or four weeks. If you're in the right Mm. district, three or four days to see the consultant. You can sort out health. You can sort out education. And again, Finland's the extreme, but it's far from abnormal. But you really don't worry about what school your child goes into in Finland. And they allow private schools. 1% still are. But why would you bother? Housing. 90% of the students, the university students in Finland, live in a state-provided council house, usually on their own because they prefer to have their own apartment. Wow. With a (laughs) fully-footed kitchen and a double bed.
0: Yeah.
1: Without being... Compare that to the £7,000 a year en suite, the most expensive toilet lever rent in a nasty student block <laughs> in England, yeah. which is owned. Or the
0: money you pay to a private landlord for a house share, which is.
1: Well, yeah, which, which is. And which are just burning, burning, burning away and pays for the cruise holidays. But those student blocks, they're owned by people who are residing in Guernsey. They're not even mm. paying their taxes. Mm. So your £7,000 a year that you're paying for your 18 year old, the majority are now going to university. That money is going to somebody who hates paying tax so much they're willing to live for half a year on this tiny island of Guernsey and you're not even contributing to tax. People should be fearful because they really are being exploited. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York Business Records.
0: This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality.
1: We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When we're talking about that Fed, do we see politicians, some of whom, who you described as lacking that core? empathy, that, yeah. that empathetic response to other humans, uh, exploiting those emotional fault lines that we have in our society. Oh, yes. And uh, how, uh, are they, for, how are they doing that?
1: And exploiting for decades and decades. I mean, just think of immigration. I can't remember a time when the tabloids weren't telling us to be scared about one group of immigrants or another. Um, you know, Fear of the other, fear of losing your position in society because a group with a different skin colour than you, or even not that different. You know, they can be whiter than you. We managed mm. to we managed to create racism against Eastern Europeans. You know, that was a spectacular achievement. So you do this to stop people thinking about why are there not enough school places?
0: Their own blame. situation, looking inwards, essentially. Yeah, and
1: blaming the immigrants. It's the reason our the school places the immigrants and their children. Why do you have to wait at the hospital? Oh, it's the immigrants, despite the fact that actually there's far more doctors who are immigrants mm. than our patients. Why is housing such a problem? it's the immigrants, and so they get on the list first, don't they? Right. So in countries that sort out their social issues, and where people are actually more better educated as, as a result of, of that, it's much harder to blame the immigrants and get away with it.
0: People are wise to it. Given that we do have the situation in our education system and other public services that means that we're not all, and and for nobody's fault, fully equipped to to do that, and people are responding with the kind of anger and fear that you described earlier, how can we spot what's happening to us to arm ourselves against being manipulated in that way? Is there anything, I mean...
1: Oh, Oh, just take a breath, take time, step back, watch if you're being baited. It's so easy to bait the left. Let's get you to talk about this issue of something, not what you want to talk about, but let, let's talk about sexuality. Let's talk about who's allowed to use a toilet. Let's let's find something that will get you going. You know, our word for it is culture wards. Yeah. But it's baiting by clever people on the right who fund magazines, Odom, Rich, who who... Essentially a constantly, and this is baiting for the clever intellectual left, the ones who think they're ever so smart. Mm. You know, and we all think we're smart, right? But we're not. We're human.
0: Well, ego-driven. Naturally, we all are.
1: Ego-driven. It is really hard to be kind. But if you tell yourself constantly, gonna be kind, not going to attack the people, going to talk about the issues, not attack the people, talk about the issues. Remember to be kind. Everybody is a human, even somebody who is really antisocial. It may well be that they're not capable of being social. Or it may be what they were taught by their family and by their school, and that they are the product of a series of things where they think they're normal. And their school taught them, for instance, uh, to think that the British Empire only ever did good and was a progressive force always. And I forget the exact quote that Jeremy Hunt said in the budget speech, but I'm sure he absolutely believes this. They're not always trying to wind you up when they mm. say something, being unkind, but anyway, he won't mind. When they say something <laughs> patently, absurdly stupid, sometimes they actually believe these things, but sometimes they don't and they're trying to wind you up.
0: It's interesting to pull out that Hunt remark there to talk about uh our failings of understanding, because too often we're being told in that baiting uh, dynamic that you described that that we as voters simply don't understand. So it's, it's interesting, you know, that kind of role reversal there.
1: Yes, we don't. And we, and we don't understand, you know...
0: Economics or... Oh, you don't understand
1: how economics works and we haven't got enough money. You don't understand how hard we've been trying to repair these schools. You don't understand how much <laughs> I care. And and so the problem is there's a mix of this baiting. I mean, clearly the minister knows that they haven't tried very hard to repair schools. So There's a mix of, of the deliberate baiting to, to annoy you or to fool people and, and pretend that somehow the government has been worrying about schools, which it hasn't been. And sometimes things they really believe that are idiotic, Um, I don't know, we have the best schools in the world, right? They absolutely believe it. Some of them went to these schools. They absolutely believe that this is the best possible education on the planet somebody could receive. And if only you had 50,000 pounds a year, your child could as well, right? Mm. And some of them went to schools and they think they've come out as the top cornflakes, And they've even learned, some of them later on in life, not to use the phrase top cornflake anymore, (laughs) right? But they're not that quick at it. Um, So they have these things that are held dear to them that they really believe. And then other things that they say, such as they really cared about the fact that there were schools with roofs for years that could have collapsed and killed children. They knew that their schools could have collapsed and killed children and they didn't do anything about it. And you've got to think, how did we end up with people who are willing for children to die in charge of us.
0: So, given the situation, the inequality that simply seeks to um, ramp up all this emotion that that causes the division, is there any way back from this level of sort of conflict and aggression in our politics? Yes. And how would politicians leave that how because, do we do it how do we do it yeah, we do, how do okay we, do it? we
1: we look at how we did it last time we were most unequal last time around right about 1918 how did we unravel those huge social divisions when the most common job for women was being a servant how did we get to a position where john maynard Keynes was called by his banker friend uh, actually a great force for moral good is what he really did. How did we get to a position where a conservative health minister helped bring in the National Health Service? Mm. It wasn't just Labour. How did we get to a position where a quite nasty eugenicist young man later writes a report in 1942 on the welfare state and this liberal lord Um, who thought that women should be subservient and the middle class should have four white children for the good of the race. How did you get to him producing the beverage report? How did you get your Conservative, Labour and Liberal parties working together and eventually in the 50s fighting each other to see who can build the most council houses?
0: Genuine consensus on what the country and people need, exactly. Oh,
1: Oh, the second most by the 70s, the second most equal country in Europe, large country after Sweden. We've done it before, right? And then it began to. So, what did we do,
0: Danny? Tell us, (laughs) and what can we? What is possible to replicate now?
1: And you see it in other countries as well. It was partly, it was forced upon us. Uh, The first World War was only supposed to last weeks. The debt was enormous. The only people who could pay for it were the rich. We had to take the houses off them. They donated them to national trust. We found polite ways of doing this. We had pay deals whereby people at the top didn't get any pay increase, the unions got pay increases at the bottom. We've seen that again this year. For the first mm. time in decades, we've got progressive pay deals. Um, the, a lot of it was the inevitability, losing an empire. We still don't teach that having an empire makes you very rich. So obviously losing what makes you poorer. But also, and massively important, people in the top 1%, uh, learning more about the rest of society. Now, sadly, well, Beveridge's brother in law, Tawney, I mean, he, he learned about the rest of society by being in a shell hole on the Somme and being injured and having to spend time with working class men, uh, whereas he'd gone to boarding school with Beveridge. Um, now, you don't want people to have to learn about other human beings by fighting a terrible war with them, but they did. Mm. We don't have the equivalent now, but we have had the most enormous financial crash in 2008, the equivalent in 1929.
0: And the uh, pandemic, which at, at yes. the beginning of the pandemic, there was this feeling that it would have a similar effect to previous conflicts, that there would be some kind of social resetting and a, a, a we're all in it together type feeling. And, yeah. and also the... The furlough scheme obviously brought in this idea that actually the state can support, mm. and it's often right for them to do that. Yeah. And it's oh. funny how quickly it's swept away.
1: It, well, this is the question of whether it has or not. Uh, there are myths about what happened during the pandemic, about how we all came together. ONS did 86 social surveys during the pandemic. An unbelievable resource if you're a social scientist. We've never social surveyed. Just because
0: everyone was available.
1: <laughs> they, they were available. Well, no, because the government were really scared that people wouldn't comply. Right. So they wanted ONS to ask people what they thought of the restrictions. If you were the chief advisor to the prime minister at the start of this going on, and your social group were quite in it for themselves and selfish, then your assumption might well be, and might well be rational that if we were going to lock down London, people are going to panic. They'll raid the supermarkets. There'll be riots. You can't do this. And the most sensible thing is to drive very fast to County Durham. So ONS were asked to survey the population. Turns out the population are incredibly dutiful. Really, we we don't misbehave in England. But we didn't look after each other. We weren't checking on our neighbours. Of course we weren't because they could have killed us just by breathing on us. It was traumatic. The pandemic really was traumatic. Um, we like to forget it now. We're kind of in the period after the war. We don't want to think about it, even though the disease is here with us just as much as it ever was.
0: And ramping up again for this autumn.
1: But I don't believe it didn't change us. And in a similar way to the wars, you've got to remember the vast majority of people in the First World War, they weren't fighting. No. they were at home yeah they weren't even told what happened the men never spoke but attitudes changed without the men who came back saying what had happened they couldn't talk about the first world war it wasn't until much later that we we began to talk about what that war really involved um the vast majority of the population in the second world war were not bombed were not directly involved but at the end of that second world war and we'd achieved over half of our Increase in inequality had happened before 1939. The attitude at the end of the Second World War is our elite have taken this into two world wars that could have been avoided. We are not going to trust these people in charge anymore or what they say about how the world has to be. And the generation grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s wanting more, being willing for their children to be educated together for the first time in history, bringing in comprehensive education that parts that the rest of Europe watched and copied. Mm. That's why Finland has the best education in the world. They copied ours. We brought in the best housing system in all of Europe. Majority of children in the 1940s grew up in a council house at one point. You know, this was emulated in other countries. Absolutely. And let's look before we go on to the health service, right? But it was a mixture of necessity but also imagination amongst key people in the elite. The Bloomsbury (laughs) Group and so on. Able to step slightly out of their cloistered, privileged backgrounds and just see other people as slightly more human than their parents had done.
0: And so using that example, we've got this perhaps unique moment now. We are going to end up with a change of government. Yeah. We've got this post-pandemic, post liz Truss economic yes. crash, you know, vibe, yes. <laughs> for want of a better word, um, If there's one thing that you would ask of Starmer to be in that first tranche of policies, what would you say? What would make the biggest difference in improving inequality?
1: Practical things. So just a really simple example, within 100 days, no child will Be unable to go into school to a classroom, and whatever means are necessary, that will happen.
0: Starting with children seems the best place, uh, to me. Building a new society, where else to start?
1: Well, I can give you let me give you one more, and either, oh, although Starmer won't do this because of tribal politics. The most amazing thing has happened since November in the UK, we have had the biggest reduction in child poverty to occur anywhere in Europe, and we don't talk about it in England in November of 2022, the Scottish Child Payment, which used to only apply for £10 and only to children under six, was extended all children up to the age of 16 in Scotland whose family receive any form of benefit, which is roughly two out of seven children. Their family get £25 a week extra for that child. For a family of three children under 16, that is £4,000 a year. That is given untapered. You don't lose other benefits. That means that by this autumn in Scotland, not a single child will go hungry and not a single child will go cold this winter. It's happening in the UK right now, It is entirely affordable because ending poverty is incredibly cheap. Starmer and Rachel Reeves could decide to adopt that policy. So the question is, is how do you get through? And, and of course, you're not just getting through to those two. You're getting through to the person who's advising them. Mm. The long-term harm of not doing this. For a child who made the mistake of being born with a brother and a sister, or brother and brother sister, so children with, in the family of three in England, 56% of them now, a the majority, are going hungry two or three times a week in England because they are in a family of three because of that. Right. And that's okay, the Resolution yeah. Foundation. Yeah, These things aren't produced. Stephanie Flanders of Bloomberg, the poorest fifth of people in Britain are now poorer than the majority of the poorest fifth in all of Eastern Europe. That's Stephanie Flanders. I, I, I've i been at this for 35 years. I can now pick you quotes and data from the most middle of the road, right wing. It is it is like, in some ways, after the First World War. The situation is a common
0: that, understanding?
1: There is a common and increasing understanding I mean, you know, I probably disagree with some of these people about what kind of society I would want, but how many of us would actually want children to be going hungry or cold? And in which case, how do you defend? And saying, oh, England cannot cannot afford, and this is just child benefit for the the third or fourth child, let alone the £25 a week, Mm. which Scotland gives in addition to paying child benefit to all children, if you're the third or fourth child in Scotland, you get child benefit as well. They call it the vape tax in Scotland. Because the whole and you can look at the horrible text on the DWP website, where it explains to you as a mother, if you were to have a third child, but you can go to DWP and explain that you it wasn't consensual that you had sex with your part of that third one, then they might pay you child benefit in England. You have to do that. In Scotland, you just get it. Right? It's a shameful moment in our history that the Labour Party did this. But saying that to being confrontational may not be the right approach. way, might, might not be the right approach. Um, Labour are so afraid of losing that the temptation to go for the bigoted vote, to talk about how scared we should be about the small boats... How we can't afford to let the poor eat, because they want to try and get this imagined middle of the road voter living somewhere in East Yorkshire, who you know, but they don't live in Uxbridge. Those voters, <laughs> they, and they probably they don't live where and they don't live where the by-election <laughs> in Scotland is coming up. Aiming for the bigoted middle of the road man in his fifties that they imagine is really, really the wrong way to go.
0: Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you. Danny's book, Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State, is published by Verso on the 19th of September. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please consider supporting The Bunker on Patreon. For just £3 a month, you can listen to the show without ads, plus a lot of extra benefits. I'm Hannah Fern. Thank you for listening.
1: The Bunker was written and presented by Hannah Fern. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.